Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number five, Until We Have Faces. Um, before we begin, um, I, was gonna, <laughs> I was about to say, before we start uh, discussing some of these very painful passages today, but then I was realizing, really, there's a lot of this book that's quite painful. Um, a lot of this book that really is, it's one of the things that's very, both very remarkable about this book and also very... Um, well, just sort of straight. One of the things that makes it really stand out in the uh, in the C.S. Lewis corpus, I think, um, it, the way that this deals with, you know, the tone is set from the very beginning with Orwell's um, angry, embittered, and um, uh, clearly wounded, right? Um, old aching wounds um uh you know opening attack on the gods and um anyway it's uh it gets there's a lot of um a lot of harsh honesty in this book i think again uh, not the kind of thing one is especially not the kind of thing one is used to expecting from C.S. Lewis, as if one doesn't expect honesty from C.S. Lewis. But no, it's um, again there's a kind of there's a kind of harshness to this um, to Orwell's perspective all the way through um, that makes a lot of these passages I find um, very very difficult um, today in particular. Uh, here's another thing that's interesting about the, so we're going to be finishing the confrontation, the uh, final meeting between Orwell and Psyche, when Orwell goes to Psyche in the room with five sides in order to comfort her um, after her condemnation, basically, when she's being held for uh, being sacrificed the next day. Um, and the couple chapters afterwards that we're going to be looking at, chapters eight and nine, um, are chapters that are easy to kind of skim over fairly quickly because they form a kind of narrative valley between climactic moments right the from the con confrontation between the king and the and the priest of unget uh, which culminates in the condemnation of psyche and and then ultimately in in Orwell and and psyche's uh last meeting there that we we're finishing discussing that's one very Intense, right? Uh, intense in several ways. Um, sort of uh, local peak uh, of the story. And when Orwell goes up onto the mountain, as you saw from the cliffhanger ending of chapter 9, as I promised, um, another major confrontation is going to be happening there and major revelations will be occurring. And these couple chapters in between, when Orwell is just sort of coping with the grief of Psyche's loss, um, it do, you know it's it's easy as you're reading to feel like uh, you know less is happening here to kind of uh, sort of ease off your attention in some ways. At least I always found it so. But once again, as I keep saying, these are passages which, when I've gone back and reread this book again, um, I find them more and more rich every time I do. Um, so I uh, we're going to be. Uh, as usual, I'm going to be drawing out and focusing on some elements that which we won't be fully ready to draw conclusions about, but which are just, I want to make sure we notice as we go through and um, 
uh, and go and go by. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Fanaro, I think that's a really important point. Um, Fanaro says it's a great dynamic having Orwell report the story from later in her life. It's still personal as a first-person narrative, uh, but it's also a bit removed from the moment, which makes the harsh moments a bit easier to read. Yes, yes, it's... it um, Because we can see her... What's well, a really interesting combination, isn't it? Because she, on the one hand, is... Um, uh, she is these moments are clearly etched in her memory right she she narrates them in a very in a very present and compelling way um and yet we 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 almost never really lose sight of the historical distance right or while we'll still comment you know interject her own later old woman voice right um uh, to remind us of the distance here, um, there's a sense in which um, there's a sense in which she. Well, one of the ways in which I find Fanaro that it really helps me to kind of cope, right? Um, there's always a little bit of comfort to be taken from a first-person narrator, right? Like, at least, you know, I'm generally thinking most of the time when you're reading a first-person narration, I'm like, well, so the main character is probably going to live, <laughs> right? So if it looks like the main character might live, I'm like, well, probably they're going to survive so they can go on to tell the story at some point, right, later on. So um, that's always one kind of comfort to take from it. But we have much more... Uh, positive comforts than this, right? One of the things that we are, we are again, not only are told at the beginning, but are reminded of at numerous points later on, there is a sense in which we've already been told that Orwell is going to live happily ever after. One sense in which that's true, right? We know she is going to live. She is going to become queen. She is going to have a magnificent and successful reign. She is going to accomplish great things as Queen of Gloom. Like all of these things are planted, um, you know. We're 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 informed of these things, um, and so um, when I when I talk about the way that this influences some of the really painful passages, I think in particular of like how her father treats her. Um, it's easier to hear these scenes in which her father is dismissing her and insulting her and beating her um, when. We know that she is, in one sense at least, going to have the last laugh, right? Um, exactly, curious chance. She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time, right? Exactly, exactly. I agree. Happily ever after is certainly not quite right. Um, uh, she lived miserably ever after, or Ambrosius, I agree, she lived powerfully ever after is certainly certainly what we get. Um, but um, um, anyway... So it's it, it is I, I anyway I'm just agreeing with you Fanaro I think it's a really remarkable uh, technique um, and the way that the Orwell narrator maintains both the um, the immediacy of the narrative and the, the, that sort of historical distance at the same time um, and even invites us to look at the thing from two different perspectives right um, is really uh, is really amazing. Um, now, we had a, a, a question in the middle of that. Um, 
Emily was asking, can we trust her as a reliable narrator? Um, almost. Uh, yes. Yes. She is a reliable narrator in the sense that um, she, you know, as... Um, uh, right, as uh, Sarah was saying, she believes she's reliable, right? Um, she, but at the same time, uh, we are, uh, we are introduced, she admits at the very beginning, not only that she has an axe to grind, right, that she is biased, but that she is actively trying to argue a particular case. She's not just telling a story, objectively, to tell a story. She is telling a story in order to support her accusation of the gods, right? She has a thesis. The thesis is that the gods are horrible and treat humans horribly, right? This is an indictment of the gods, and the entire story is meant to be evidence to support her case. So she is wholly unashamed from the very beginning at being strongly emphatically and overtly biased in her narration, right? Um, biased in the sense that she knows what this story means, right? She is so confident that she knows the meaning of this story that she is pre she's, present she's, she's reading it into evidence, literally, reading it into ev evidence uh, to support her case in her courtroom scene. Um, uh, you know, her sort of imagined courtroom scene there. Um, but of course, the very fact that she is so, her, narr her narration is so emotionally charged from the beginning, um, that her account of her story is designed to have this particular message all along, um, is, I think, a pretty clear hint that we should be cautious, right? that we should be cautious. Uh, cautious about whether or not, perhaps, she might not have fully, she may not be quite correct about the meaning of her story, right? Um, she is certainly not objective. She makes no claim, even, at that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Ambrosius. Um, because I didn't, I, I debated about putting that on a slide and I didn't end up doing it because I wanted to focus on other things. Um, but Ambrosius was mentioning the passage in chapter nine uh, where Bardia gives her another perspective of her father. Um, where, you know, he, he laughs when she, she assumes that he's, that her father's going to be irrational and not let Bardia leave. And he laughs familiarly, Bardia does, and says, you know, the king is not with us men and warriors like he is with you. You see him at his worst when he is with women and politic men. Um, he's half afraid of them. He doesn't understand them and is half afraid of them. Um, and that's why he acts the way that he does. But with us, he's quite different. Um, Bardia seems to relate to the king almost as to a friend, which from the perspective, you know, by the time we're in chapter nine of this book, from Orwell's perspective, that seems unimaginable, right? Um, and yet we get this glimpse of this really quite different world. Um, uh, so yes, that, that's a really interesting, that passage is a really interesting example um, 
of how there are other ways to look at things. And that doesn't invalidate her narrative, right? It doesn't make her an unreliable narrator. An unreliable narrator is one who tells you things that might not be at all. Right. Um, a narrator that actually lies to you or conceals things from you deliberately and that sort of thing. Um, uh, this is not an unreliable. She is not an unreliable narrator in that sense. I, I completely agree um, with Jackrabbit Monster, uh, who says she's going to report events accurate as accurately as she can. But she doesn't know everything and is pretty dead wrong about what it means. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The, the thing that is at question in question here and the thing which is which she places like the 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 point of debate from the start is the interpretation right um what does this mean what conclusions can we draw about the gods and their relationships with men based on her story right she has her opinion on that right very strongly held um, but um, uh, but that doesn't mean it's the only it's the only view. She is certainly a non-omniscient narrator. Absolutely, Absol absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, we'll uh, let's let's keep looking. She's going to draw attention again. We will see a passage in. Uh, in chapter nine, I think it's in chapter nine again, um, where she draws attention to her own, not only her own role as narrator, um, she's frequently doing that, um, but to her uh, sort of forensic position, right? The fact that she is presenting evidence in her forensic case. Um, okay. Um, let's keep going. Oh, no, let's start which is keeping going. So you remember that Psyche had just um, hit Orowal with a really fascinating dose of um, what sounded like very practical truth, right? She was voicing out loud a thing which Orowal seems never to have let herself even think of, which is, what did you think was going to happen? What if, I mean, okay, we hadn't planned on, you know, my being sent off as a human sacrifice at this point. But what do you think will happen if I weren't to have been sent off as a human sacrifice? Sooner or later, I'm going to be sent off as a wife to some king or other like our father, right? Um, under no... Orwell seems to have been living in this sort of dream state, right? This time of happiness for all of Psyche's youth... Um, from when she first quasi adopts Psyche after her step you know, her stepmother's death, um, Psyche's mother's death, all the way up through this moment of Psyche's sacrifice. Um, and Psyche points out the uncomfortable truth that time would have had to end one way or another. Um, and it would certainly have ended with separation and you know, comparative misery. Um, it's not possible to stop things where they were. Um, 
Right, Emily, exactly. Psyche was going to be a human sacrifice one way or another, whatever happened. Yeah, and those are all all of those things. Um, even to be married and to have children, right? To lose one's maidenhead. These are all kinds of deaths, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, she now makes an admission. She, Psyche, looking back over their happy times, makes the following, uh, hazards the following confession to Orwal. This, she said, I have always, at least ever since I can remember, had a kind of longing for death. Ah, Psyche, I said, have I made you so little happy as that? No, 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 she said, you don't understand. Not that kind of longing. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. It was on happy days, when we were up there on the hills, the three of us, with the wind and the sunshine, where you couldn't see Gloam or the palace. Do you remember? The color and the smell, and looking across at the gray mountain in the distance? And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't. Not yet. Come. And I didn't know where I was come to, where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. And yes, uh, Jackrabbit, you're absolutely right. Um, those who are familiar with C.S. Lewis's entire work, especially with his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, will recognize um, that he is speaking here of something that he speaks at length on other occasions, um, this idea of joy. Sehnsucht, yeah, exactly. Exactly, to use the German word. Um, but this is... I was actually really, really glad uh, that I stopped right before this passage because this is a perfect passage to um, introduce the stuff that we're going to get to today. Um, the happiness, the joy, the beauty of them being up on the mountains. Now, remember... Orwell, that th those times when she, the fox, and Psyche were together up on the mountain, up on the hilltops, outside of town, together, just the three of them, are absolutely Orwell's happiest moments, right? She, too, like Psyche, cherishes those days and weeks and months together. Um, you know, the, the, all the times they had over the years, the three of them together, that's, that's Orwell's dearest memories as well, right? But there's an interesting difference between the two of them, right? And their reactions to it. When Orwell thinks back to this, she is always thinking just of, of them and their time together. Psyche expresses this, acknowledges this, this sense of something more. That the happiness the very happiness and the beauty and the freshness of it set her longing. It was like a taste of something that could not be satisfied on those hills. Right. So remember geographically, roughly, um, we don't know much about the geography of Gloam, including where it is. I kind of suspect, by the way, that it might be somewhere near the Caspian Sea. Perhaps there's a sea nearby, which Orwell says is nothing near so great and grand as the Sea of the Greeks, that is to say the Mediterranean. But there is a, 
a, a sea of some kind, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, um, the... Um, uh, uh, but that's not what I mean when I talk about geography. I mean this local geography, which seems to be very symbolically sig significant, right? Um, that is, you've got Gloom in this valley, right, with the River Shennet running down in the middle of it. And then on one side, you have the Grey Mountain, right, the, the Holy Mountain, where Ungit's son lives. And then you have on the other side of Gloom, you have those hills, where the fox and Psyche and Orowal went up together to have their, their wonderful times together. Um, so, um, so the, on the one hand, there is this sort of direct view from the hills up to the mountain. So, the, the, so you have a kind of symmetry, but it's an uneven symmetry. A symmetry where you've got gloom in the middle and you've got the hills on the one side and you've got the mountain on the other side. Um, and again, it's it's not it's so there, there's a kind of symmetry there, but it's 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 unequal uh, because the hill they're just hills, and then you've got the mountain, which is uh, very different. But you've got the this sort of the glory, and she's looking across, right? She's looking across from the hills to the mountain. This these moments when she's longing for somewhere where there must be more of this. Um, being called to a place where she's looking over at the mountain, right? Psyche has this, and you'll remember those passages earlier on when we were with them on the hills in the early chapters, when she would talk about the um, the bronze and amber palace that she would live in on top of the Grey Mountain, right? Um, the Grey Mountain seemed already at that earlier stage to represent to her this future, presently unattainable beauty and glory, um, which was out of her reach, but which she felt destined to do. Um, so, um, anyway, that's, um, uh, that is, here she talks about it more clearly. And notice also, Orwald doesn't get it at all, Right. When Psyche says that she had a kind of longing for death, Orwell can only under she only understands it in the sense of, I was so miserable I wanted to die, right? And Orwell is immediately hurt by the idea of Psyche longing for death. Did I have I made you so little happy as that? Um, and Orwell says, and um, uh, Orwell says. She doesn't say this in so many words, right? But she's basically, or, or Psyche then says to her, "It's it's it's not about you, Orwell, right? This has nothing to do with you. You don't understand, right?" Um, this tells us a couple things, right? One is that um, she it, it Orwell. And this is again is reflected in Orwell's own recollections. Um, Orwell is always focused on them, on Psyche, and on herself. Right? Her first thought is, "Has my love for you been so inadequate 
right? Have I failed so completely as to make you so miserable that you're longing for death? And Psyche is looking beyond. Um, yeah, Leaf of Starlight, that's a really great way to say it. Um, Psyche seems to look to the world more. Orowal's world is Psyche. Yes, yes. And Scott, absolutely, Orowal's selfish side is coming out. Um, she keeps making it about her and increasingly as this conversation goes along. Um, it's like Scott, she can't let go of that, right? She is so... The way that the shock of this grief, of this loss, has hit Orowal, she, even though she wants to, even though she knows she should look beyond her own grief, even though she knows she should be trying to give Psyche comfort or encouraging Psyche in any kind of comforting, she came here to comfort Psyche, and yet she like actually attempts to undermine Psyche's comfort um, because her own uh, her own grief, which is being expressed selfishly. Um, that's how it comes out, right? Um, what is revealed is her love for Psyche is clearly genuine, right? But it's also very possessive. Um, it's she herself, Orwell herself, is very much at the center of her love for Psyche itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Corey, you're certainly right. The jury is still out about whether the gods are jealous, uh, but we can see who certainly is. Yes, the jealousy in the in the classical sense of jealousy, in the way in which, by the way, I believe you know the word, the Hebrew word that is translated as jealous in many English Bibles, when God says to uh, the Israelites on Mount Sinai or from Mount Sinai that you know His name is jealous, right? He is a jealous God. Um, it doesn't mean that he wants what other people have. It means that he has no intention of sharing the things that he has, right? And he's specifically speaking of the Israelites, right? You are my, are going to be my people, and I, I'm not fixing to share you, right? That's hence the you shall have no other gods and that sort of thing. Um, yes, the second commandment sense is exactly right. That's exactly, that is the old meaning of jealous, that before in the modern usages, we've thoroughly confused the concepts of envy and jealousy, but they used to be fairly distinct. And um, Orwell is certainly jealous in that sense. Um, she doesn't, she grudges, there's a, a, a sense in which she grudges even Psyche's affection for the fox because she wants it all for her. She is greedy for Psyche's love and focus and attention. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, anyway, let's keep, uh, let's keep going here. Since I write this book against the gods, it is just that I should put into it whatever can be said against myself. So let me set this down. As she spoke, I felt amid all my love a bitterness, though the thing she was, she, she was, ah, huh, interesting. A typo, sorry. Though the thing she was saying gave her, that was plain enough, courage and comfort, I grudged her that courage and comfort. It was as if someone or something else had come in between us. If this grudging is the sin for which the gods hate me, it is one I have committed. 
here is that example I was just referring to. It's not in chapter nine. It's here in chapter uh, seven. I think it's chapter seven, um, uh, where Orwal not only confesses her own what she feels to be have been wrong, right? Um, have been a sin, um, but she even again she's very honest. Back to the question of her reliability, right? She's a very honest narrator. She's even self-aware to some extent. And passages like this are a little bit disarming. That is to say, they might lead us to overlook, especially on a first reading, um, how little self-aware she might she is in other ways and at other moments. Because this is... Um, a significant degree of self-awareness, not only of honesty, but of self-awareness. Um, yeah. Um, so notice so what her confession is. It's not just that she is uncomforting, right? Um, she is discomforting psyche, but that she grudges her courage and comfort. It was as if someone or something else had come in between us, right? This is where the selfishness is so visible. It's not enough for her that Psyche be comforted, right? What she insists on is that Psyche receive comfort from her, right? That is what matters to her. That's what she's confessing here. If should If her love for Psyche were totally disinterested. She would seek nothing other than the knowledge that Psyche was receiving courage and comfort. But she admits to herself, she felt even at the time, that she grudged. She grudged her courage and comfort. For the reason that I said, because it, it comes from someone other than herself, which, remember, Orwell came in order to give comfort, right? Um, but yes, Leaf of Starlight, in addition, um, in addition, there is something else that is giving Psyche courage and comfort. She doesn't just re resent the fact that she got it from anywhere else but her. She resents the fact that she's getting it. She resents where she's getting it, right? And notice where, where does she get it? Where is Psyche? What is giving Psyche courage and comfort exactly in her confession? Where is her courage coming from? Yeah, mighty Felix, the gray mountain. This longing, the glimpse. Yes. Um, yeah. The fox's teachings also, yes, earlier on, right? And even that, Orowal was was grudging a bit, right? There's only the hint. Psyche herself doesn't know. Psyche herself doesn't fully explain or understand this, right? Psyche's kind of groping to understand this. But whatever it is, Orwell doesn't like the look of it. She doesn't like the sound of it, right? Um... 
because it sounds like Psyche. Yeah, Lisa Starry says it smells like holiness. Yes. Except to Psyche, holiness doesn't seem to be horrible. Right? But instead, um, longing. Right? She longs for it. Um, Orwell wants Psyche to find peace, to find her true home with her. Psyche feels that she's like a bird in a cage when other birds were flying home. And she's looking at the gray mountain in the distance. Um, Psyche doesn't say it. Orwell doesn't say it. But it seems there is an awareness, at the very least on Orwell's part, a kind of suspicion that the gods themselves are her rivals. That part of her indictment against the gods, part of her bitterness that she expresses here, the bitterness which is going to flower into the, the anger and resentment that she's been expressing since page one, it isn't only the fact that the gods have sent grief and torment. The god was her rival from the beginning, and she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. Um, what if there is something beyond? She doesn't want to think of even Psyche, Psyche's love for the fox, because that might be in some sense a rival for her love for Orwell, right? Um, but how could how can Orwell compete with this? Um, the time when I was with you, Orwell, and we were happy together gave me a taste of a higher, deeper, more satisfying joy that you could never satisfy. Not good from Orwell's perspective, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Keep going. Orwell, she said, her eyes shining. I am going, you see, to the mountain. Psyche, she has been thinking this through, right? And now she's going to make it much worse. I'm going to the mountain. You remember how we used to look and long? And all the stories of my golden amber house up there against the sky where we thought we should never really go? The greatest king of all was going to build it for me. If only you could believe it, sister. No, listen. Do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. Is it my heart that is hardened? Never to me, nor mine to you at all. But listen, are these things so evil as they seemed? The gods will have mortal blood, but they say whose? If they had chosen any other in the land, that would have been only terror and cruel misery. But they chose me, and I am the one who has been made ready for it ever since I was a little child in your arms, Maya. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from. This is where she's really springing it on her, right? Where it's becoming clearer and clearer to Orwell that her rival is the god of the mountain. 
Notice how inclusive Psyche is in her language. Remember how we used to look and long? They both looked, perhaps, but it was only Psyche who was longing. We heard from Orwal what she was thinking. Um, remember, it was the passage when she was looking up at the Grey Mountain where she says, the Grey Mountain, you know, the God of the Grey Mountain, who hates me, right? Um, yeah, did Orwal ever long but has forgotten it? It is an interesting question, Eric. Is it possible that there was a longing on Orwal's part which the bitterness of this time and the rest of her life thereafter has eclipsed in her memory? It's possible. It's possible. Um, one of two things is, seems true, right? Either Psyche is projecting. Psyche thought that Orowal saw the same thing she did when she never did. Or she's right and Orowal is resistant now. Um, uh, we'll, we'll see. We may get some more evidence later on about this, but it would be good to remember this. At the very least, the very minimum thing that is clear here is the gap between the two of them, between, their, between where they are now, right, um, and how they look at this situation. Um, she recalls the stories of her golden amber house up there against the sky, where we thought we should never really go. That may be true, though, again, perhaps for different reasons. Um, yeah, Carrie says, could it be a scar that prevents such flexi flexibleness of heart to encompass more than self-defense? Yes, very, very, very possibly. Very possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if only you could believe it, sister. If only you could believe it, sister. Psyche does seem to believe, not only to believe in this beauty and glory beyond her experience to this point, but she goes on to explain how she believes that she's been called to that. That this longing was placed in her for a reason. The gods show that they are just by choosing her for this sacrifice. I am the one who has been made ready for it ever since I was a little child in your arms, Maya. A little child in your arms, Mommy. Right? Um, now, it's... Notice how easy it becomes. At least I find it really easy. Um to hear this in Orowal's perspective, right? Think how this must cut Orowal in the state that we have seen, in the point of view that we have seen her in, right? That, um, what, that her love for Psyche was only a means to an end, basically, right? Um, all the love that she poured out on Psyche when Psyche was a little child in her arms was but to make her ready for this marriage to the gods? If only you could believe it, sister. If only she, Orwal, would look up to the mountain, would look and possibly long as well. Do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. 
but Orowal only has the one thing. Notice also, again, this, there's there's an honesty and generosity in Orowal as narrator here. She doesn't privilege her own perspective. She's giving all of these long speeches from Psyche. She only gives herself one-liners in the middle of them, you know, and often not very flattering one-liners. Um, she doesn't recast this whole conversation to make herself sound like the hero of it, right? Again, is some of the stuff that I would say when I say I, I clearly she's a very honest narrator, right? Um, is it my heart that is hardened? Um, yes, actually, sounds like, but you see her meaning, right? She can hear this only as hardness of heart against her, right? Don't you care? You're, you're, so you're happy to be leaving me? I came here to comfort you, thinking how, you know, despairing and terrified you would be knowing that you're going off to be killed tomorrow as a human sacrifice. But um, here you are happy about it, happy to leave me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, if only you could believe it. That's what Psyche leaves open the possibility that Orowal could see what she sees, could choose to believe what Psyche believes. If only you could. If only you would. Um, and that was the sweetest? Oh, cruel, cruel. Your heart is not of iron. Stone, rather, I sobbed. I don't think she even heard me. My country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing? The longing for home? For indeed it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life the god of the mountain has been wooing me. Oh, look up once at least before the end and wish me joy. I am going to my lover. Do you not see now? I only see that you have never loved me, said I. It may well be you are going to the gods. You are becoming cruel like them. Um, the, the widening gap, um, between the two of them as they speak at cross purposes here, um, Psyche no longer even hearing Orwell, Orwell going further and further past, you know, She's gone past not giving comfort to grudging comfort to trying to now actively make her feel horrible, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Leaf of Starlight is very black and white thinking. Um, the, the, the idea that this shows that Psyche has never loved her. Yes, yes. Um, 
Jocelyn, yeah, Jocelyn says, the parent who is ready and willing or happy to let the child fly away has to have been understanding that that was their job during the raising of the child. But Orowa wasn't an adult. She was a child herself with no stability in her own parental models. Very true. Very true. In some ways, the fact that they are sisters, as well as, in a different sense, mother and child, right? Maya and baby, um, does really complicate their relationship and makes Orwell vulnerable to this. She is not at all ready for this change of relationship. Um, good, yes. Um, the uh, um, someone was asking, Cal Elros was asking with the, about the, the, the significance, the sort of the weight of her shift from iron to stone. Um, and I think um, uh, iron is associated with swords, weapons. Um, stone is associated with the gods. Ungit is a stone, right? Um, to say she has a heart of stone is a preamble to what she's going to go on to say that she is becoming cruel, like the gods. Um, stone is associated with a mountain, too. That is, that is, that, that's, that's correct. That's correct. Um, uh, there will be a couple times when they... people make swear oaths on, on a sword, the oath on edge, um, as they call it in Gloam, and that's the most binding oath that they can make, right? But that's a, it's a human covenant, right? It's a, it's a, it's a way of, it's the, the strictest promise between two people. Um, but yeah, when you're interacting with the stones, you're in the house of Ungit, right? It's, uh, it's different. Um, anyway. Notice as well, Somebody was talking about this before, but, um, and I didn't, didn't comment on it, on it then. Um, you can remind me who it was who said this, but, um, here in this central paragraph here, more clearly than anywhere else, I agree that we can hear how Psyche's perspective here in this moment before she goes off to the, to the great offering is she has in her own perspective married the perspectives of the fox and Glum. Right? This is the philosophy of the fox meets uh, the religion of Glum. And this is like their perfect child, their perfect combination. Um, she is speaking both languages here. The This idea of it feels not like going, but like going back. Um, this sense of home, that's a very Greek idea. It's a very platonic idea. Um, she has taken some of these ideas of Greek philosophy, and yet she ha it is perfectly expressed in terms of the religion of Gloom. 
um, yes, it is a, 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 th- a thorough combination, Sarah, of the, uh, the, the, the thick and clear religions. Yes. Yeah. Um, her perspective here has the clarity of the Greeks and also the thickness of, uh, of, of the beliefs of Gloom. This is why she, like, she's all about the sacrifice, right? Yes, the sacrifice is good. The sacrifice is right. Um, I know because when I am called to it, I feel that I am fulfilling my entire purpose. I am going home. I have been called to this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, That this is kind of the end. Right after this, right after she accuses her of being cruel, Bardia knocks on the door, and she has to leave. And that's the end, right? The last time she will talk to Psyche before she Psyche is sacrificed. Um, and so we can see a lot of the bitterness of Orwal surely has to do with the fact that her memories of her last meeting with Psyche are full of bitterness, towards what Psyche was saying, but also self-reproach as well. Yes, the last spoiled embrace. Um, oh, thank you. I wanted to quote that, but I want to just make a whole slide of that, but fair enough. It's a wonderful sentence. So the last spoiled embrace. Those are happy who have no such in their memory. For those who have, would they endure that I should write of it? Oh, man. So good. So good. Um, anyway, okay. After this, she attempts, Orwell attempts to do something, right? Remember, she's battered. She was beaten by the king, um, and can barely move. Um, she tries to get up to go to Psyche. She's does, doesn't seem to have any clear purpose to try to stop the sacrifice, to try to follow, uh, you know, to you know, lie in wait and set Psyche free from the tree when everybody leaves. She doesn't know what to do, right? But she wants to do something. Um, And she fails. Her body fails her, right? She just collapses and is put to bed. Um, And she misses the sacrificial procession, which she wasn't going to be allowed to attend anyway. Um, uh, Yes, it does sound like she has multiple broken bones. She describes her, her side some kink in her side, which I definitely suspect to be possibly multiple broken ribs. Um, but, um, uh, in any case, um, what we get in the, oh, hang on one other brief mention. I didn't have a passage for this. But I wanted to just draw attention to the fact. Remember what her last glimpse of Psyche was? Her last glimpse of Psyche, she didn't see her at first in the crowd because Psyche has been masked and gilded and wigged like one of Ungit's girls. So they took the most beautiful creature in the world and turned it into an ugly doll. Um, So all of those things that we were noticing, the facelessness of Ungit's girls, the gilded breasts, the, um, the blonde wig, right? 
um, they do all that to Psyche when Psyche goes. Um, she is ungetified, Leaf of Starlight, exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Okay, anyway, so just just to notice that she, uh, Psyche, goes facelessly, right, uh, to her uh, to her sacrifice. Now, let's spend the rest of our time look at what happens after. Let's look at these coping chapters, right, where she, Orowal, is trying to cope with her grief. Um, she's talking to the fox afterwards, because, of course, when she wakes up, she discovers that, holy cow, as soon as the great sacrifice was performed, everything got better. Like, everything. All of a sudden, the rain comes, the drought is over, the famine is over, the pestilence instantly goes away, the lions stop coming, um, and things, Fars is the large kingdom nearby that was definitely going to be invading them in the spring. Um, and now there's, like, civil war in Fars, and there's, like, no way Fars is possibly going to attack. Exactly, Sarah. It's like, as soon as the great sacrifice happens, it's all rainbows and unicorns in, in, in Gloam. Um, exactly, um, uh, uh, exactly. So she's waking up and being told all these things, um, by the fox. Cursed chance, cursed chance, he muttered, his face all screwed up, partly in anger and partly to keep back his tears. Greek men cry easily as women. It is these chances that nourish the beliefs of barbarians. How often, grandfather, you have told me there's no such thing as chance. You're right. It was an old trick of the tongue. I meant that all these things had no more to do with that murder than with anything else. They and it are all a part of the same web, which is called nature, or the whole. That southwest wind came over a thousand miles of sea and land. The weather of the whole world would have to have been different from the beginning if that wind was not to blow. It's all one web. You can't pick threads out, nor put them in. This is the fox's Greek wisdom in saying... It is, there is no way that sacrificing Psyche brought the rain, right? It just doesn't work that way. And so, said I, raising myself on my elbow, she died to no purpose. If the king had waited a few days later, we could have saved her, for all would have begun to go well of itself. And this you call comfort? She, um is not convinced, or at least not convinced that that's a very comforting idea, right? Um, and this you call comfort. Um, I feel that we can already begin to see what Orwell would say, right? How she would comment on that. Um, if that were true, if it turns out, of course, that the sacrifice was totally unnecessary and all these things would have come right had they just waited an extra week, um, then there would have been no need to sacrifice Psyche at all. Orwell would say, so all of this was just out of arbitrary cruelty, right? The fox, what we can see from her reaction here is that the, the philosophy of the fox, far from providing her any comfort provides fuel for her grievance against the gods. It would be one thing. It would be one thing for the gods to say, we will give blessings to you, but we demand a price. If you 
sacrifice Psyche, we will bless your land. She would still call that cruel, as just as, as the uh, fox calls it barbaric, right? She would still call that cruel, but at least that's something for something, right? The If she accepts the fox's philosophy, which to some extent she always does, then it makes the whole thing simply a cruel mockery. That they, the gods took Psyche from her and gave her nothing in exchange. Right? That this was all a farce done only for the purpose of being cruel to Orowal herself. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Eric, yes. This book so far is like Lewis taking Boethius and adding deep compassion and keen psychological insight. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, yes. Yes. You'll remember that the fox, she also, she catches the fox, right? Here contradicting his own philosophy. And you'll remember that it's soon after this, as he is trying to continue to describe, you know, this is not what he calls comfort, but there is comfort to be taken from it. And he tries to explain it to her and but is overwhelmed by his own emotion, breaks down weeping, puts his his uh, flips his cowl up over his head and 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 runs away. Um, the next day he returns. The next day he said, you saw yesterday, daughter, how little progress I have made. I began to philosophize too late. You are younger and can go further. To love and to lose what we love are equally things appointed for our nature. If we cannot bear the second well, that evil is ours. It did not befall Psyche. If we look at it with reason's eye and not with, the pa with our passions, what good that life offers did she not win? Chastity, temperance, prudence, meekness, clemency, valor, and though fame is froth, yet if we should reckon it at all, a name that stands with Iphigenia's and Antigone's. Here is the fox's comfort, right? There is no good that life offers that she did not have. And she was taken. She died before she could lose any of them. Right? No evil would she, you know, are evils done to her? Yes, but those are not evils of her, right? Um, those are evils of the people who do them, right? She is not injured by them. Um, to, for her to have been, you know, wrongfully executed, right, unjustly killed, is not an evil of hers. Um, and in this sense, in this Eric Very Boethian sense, right, does her no harm. Um, the problem, if there is a problem, is with them. If they cannot take comfort in knowing this, the problem is with them. To love and to lose what we love are equally things appointed for our nature. This is the way things are. It is their job to bear the second well. Notice how he talks about progress, right? Progress. Um, 
how little progress I have made. To philosophize, that is, to, to come to understand the nature of things, is to achieve a kind of distance from human experience, not to be guided by your passions, right? To conquer the passions, to live by reason instead of by the passions, to see things with reason's eye, right? That is what it means. That is where the comfort of the fox rests, seeing things with reason's eye and not with the passions. And if you can make progress, you have to make progress because that is not the natural state of things. Nobody is born a philosopher. You must become a philosopher. Um, we are all born with passions. Um, those passions must be conquered, conquered by reason. And if we can conquer uh, the passions with reason, as he himself freely admits that he um, uh, that he fails to do. Yes, I uh, I think he's mostly a Stoic. He's familiar with Platonism. Remember that passage where, um, in, in chapter 7 there, when Psyche says that the fox said that he admitted that there were other masters, that is, other philosophers, other than the ones that he follows? And that sounded like she was talking about Platonists versus the Stoics, which I, I think the fox is clearly a Stoic. But I agree, there is certainly some Platonism kind of mixed in there uh, with his thought. And again, obviously, Psyche has absorbed a great deal of Platonism through the fox. So there's definitely, there's definitely something there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Jackrabbit. He's an irrational man trying to be a Stoic, which is what a Stoic is, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so this is what he strives for, and he holds out hope that Orwal can go further than he because she began to philosophize younger, right? Um, it is an interesting thing that, well, the fox seems to be quite wrong about this. Um, based on what we saw on page one, I don't think Orwal has gone much further by the time she is old. I don't think she has gone much further than the fox in actually conquering her passions, right? She seems still to have plenty of passions ruling her uh, when she is when she is older. Um, JJ, yeah, is Lewis directly addressing Boethius here by having the philosophy not be consoling? Um, y yes, in a sense, absolutely. Um, he is he is explicitly deploying lines of thinking from Boethius's consolation of philosophy in a situation of the consolation of a person in grief. So I'm so yes, like it's a it's a very um it's a very clear sort of callback or challenge in that way. Um I don't think though again we have to remember this is all Orwell's perspective, right? Um if you know um, if you know Boethius, I think it's easy to imagine what Lady Philosophy would say if she had a conversation with Orwell here, right? I think that she would say, um, it is not that philosophy is failing to comfort or console 
Orwal in her grief. Um, it is that Orwal is, uh, has turned away from philosophy's teachings. Um, she, is, she is rejecting them. She is, um, if she were to be, in fact, um, a faithful student of philosophy, she would find comfort. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realize that either, that the last battle until we have faces were published in the same year. Yeah, it's, um, it's all in Plato, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Eric, uh, Orwell needs lady philosophy to chase away the muses. Uh, I, Orwell's not writing poetry, at least. It could be worse, right? But, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. This paragraph is so hard-hitting. Man, it's just, it's just another one of those incredibly psychologically insightful moments of this book, so full of them. She's postponing. She's decided at the end of the conversation with the fox that she's going to go up to the mountain and bury Psyche properly. But she she catches herself postponing it. And in truth, as I now see, I had the wish to put off my journey as long as I could, not for any peril or labor it might cost, but because I could see nothing in the whole world for me to do once it was accomplished. As long as this act lay before me, there was, as it were, some barrier between me and the dead desert which the rest of my life must be. Once I had gathered Psyche's bones, then, it seemed, all that concerned her would be over and done with. Already, even the great act still ahead, there was flowing in upon me from the barren years beyond it a dejection such as I had never conceived." It was not at all like the agonies I had endured before, and have endured since. I did not weep nor wring my hands. I was like water put in a bottle and left in a cellar, utterly motionless, never to be drunk, poured out, spilled, or shaken. The days were endless. The very shadows seemed nailed to the ground, as if the sun no longer moved. Um, oh, man. Um, just such a powerful idea that that image I was like water put into a bottle and left in a cellar that's Orwell's life right notice never to be drunk poured out, spilled or shaken there are lots of things that could happen to water right it could receive many ends it could be drunk that is, it could be enjoyed. Like, I, I don't know exactly what to parallel exactly in life experiences. Maybe for water to be drunk is, is would be like being in a happy marriage or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, like, water which is drunk is, in one sense, sort of like fulfilling its purpose, right? In nourishing and bringing life. Um, it could be poured out. That is, I'm... I would assume, presumably, ritually poured out, right? It could be poured over the unget stone, which is a thing, right? Would Again, that's also a purpose, um, fulfilling some kind of purpose. Um, but even just, like, if it gets spilled, right? if it's just knocked over and dumped onto the ground, well, that would seem... But even that would be better than just left in the bottle to do nothing, 
right? Or shaken, right? Agitated. Um, better still than, again, pure stasis. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I agree, Fayanaro. The, um, the, the thinking about how water is meant to be in motion. It is unnatural for water just to sit there like that. Um, stagnant water is never good water, right? Um, and it's, there's a kind of tragedy, right, to perfectly good water, which might have been drunk or, or poured out, maybe poured out even over, like, the fields or the plants, right? Um, but instead is just left to become stagnant and, and, and good for nothing, right? Um, this is her sense of herself, having lost her entire identity was built on Psyche, on her relationship to Psyche, and Psyche is now gone. Once I had gathered Psyche's bones, then it seemed all that concerned her would be over and done with. She feels flowing in upon her from the barren years beyond the act of gathering the bones, a dejection such as she had never conceived. Um, yes, you're right, Curious Chance. There was flowing in upon me from the barren years beyond it, a dejection. Um, yes, uh, Lewis's prose is very elegant and, uh, uh, can be very, very powerful many, many times in this book, especially. Um, also notice, by the way, how he's setting up the water imagery, right? Um... Her life is a dead desert, dry and lifeless, right? Um, the dejection which is coming upon her is flowing in from the barren years ahead like water, right? Um, like all of the water draining off that dead desert that her life is going to be. And her life is going to be a dead desert because the water that is, you know, the 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 life, the life-giving, you know, the joy and the love and everything that made her life happy and, and you know, well-nourished and everything has been put into a, an urn, right? Like she's going to put the bones of Psyche into an urn and left in the cellar, as if she, or while herself is being buried, right? Like she's going to bury Psyche's bones. Um... Oh, yes, J.J., very good. Very right to pick up on the significance of barren years. Um, barren as her womb as well. She will never have children, right? Psyche is her own, the only child she will ever have um, because her life is going to be barren. She knows she's not going to get married. She knows no one will ever marry her because of how ugly she is. Um, that's been very clear to her for a long time. So, yes, barren years... Um, with this, the death of her child, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh man, yes, Jackrabbit, the, the unexpected violence, the very shadow seemed nailed to the ground. Um, yeah, yeah. 
horrible, right? The very stasis of the sun, the very deadness of the time is like itself an act of violence, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bardia provides some comfort as well. The fox tried to provide some comf comfort. Bardia tries to help. Um, help her get past this deadness of her life. And he does so by trying to give her another purpose. Right? In the short term, by helping her exercise. Right? Have her do something. Anything. So he trains her in sword fighting. Um, because he noticed when she attacked him, um, which he easily prevented, um, but he noticed that she showed some talent uh, with the sword. He kept me at it for a full half hour. It was the hardest work I'd ever done, and while it lasted, one could think of nothing else. I said not long before that work and weakness are comforters, but sweat is the kindest creature of the three, far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts. That's enough, said Bardia. You shape very well. I'm sure now I can make a swordsman of you. You'll come again tomorrow, but your dress hampers you. It would be better if you could wear something that came only to your knee. It was in, I was in such a heat that I went across the passage into the dairy and drank a bowl of milk. It was the first food or drink I had really relished ever since the bad times began. While I was in there, one of the other soldiers, I suppose he had had a sight of what we were doing, came into the passage and said something to Bardia. Bardia replied, I couldn't hear what. Then he spoke louder. Why, yes, it's a pity about her face, but she's a brave girl and honest. If a man was blind and she weren't the king's daughter, she'd make him a good wife. And that is the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. Um, notice, by the way, we had in chapter 5... Um, the fox and the priest of Ungut, right? A sort of representing the two, the two side of things, right? Um, uh, you know, the the clear and the thick. Um, this moment is, in one sense, Bardia kind of stepping into that role, right? Um, the fox offers her clear comfort. The comfort of philosophy. Uh, the comfort of seeing things with reason's eye instead of being ruled by the passions. Bardia offers her thick comfort. Comfort of the blood. Right? Comfort of sweat. Um, exercise. Just do something. Anything. Right? Um... There's nothing religious about this, right? I was comparing with the priest of Unget. Um, it's not thick in that sense, right? Um, it's not blood sacrifice or anything like that. Um, but uh, remember when Psyche was talking about the priest and the fox, she was talking about the world being a city, according to the fox's philosophy, but it being built upon the earth, right? Um, Bardia is very much the 
sort of spokesman for the earth in that way, right? He is a child of the earth. Um, uh, yeah, of the body rather than the mind. Exactly, JJ. That's exactly right. Um, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, we will see Bardia also, of course, is a very fervent believer and supporter of the gods of gloom. Um, so we will, um, uh, th there are other ways in which he is going to be kind of, again, stepping into that, representing that side of the equation. Um, remember the king saying that he was neither uh, priest nor Greekling, right? Um, we are here getting our first glimpse of the position that Orwal herself will be in. Um, she will spend most of the rest of her life with the fox on one hand and Bardia on the other, right? The, um, so them representing these two different perspectives are really, um, uh, are important. Um, yeah, notice how almost exactly opposite. You're right, Eric, that Bardia gives her a chance to get out of her own head for a while. Absolutely. Um, sweat is, a, is far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts. Uh, says Orowal here, right? And again, it's almost exactly the opposite. Um, whereas the fox's philosophy is about the eye of, you know, seeing things with the eye of reason, right? Reason conquering the body, overcoming um, these, the promptings of your baser nature. And here she is experiencing that actually your baser nature can really help to overcome the problems in your mind. Right. Um, so again, Bardia's approach and the fox's approach are almost exactly opposite from each other. The fact that her response to this, the fact that her response to, you know, exercise, uh, hard exercise, is to be thirsty is no great wonder. But of course, I cannot help but remember that bottle of water, right, that was abandoned in the basement that her life was going to be. That... Um, she who felt her life to be a dead desert, which was already, right, the flowing forward um, to suck the, the, you know, all life out of her current existence, um, that she goes into the dairy and takes a bowl of milk and drinks it down, right? Um, that she the one whose life was a dead desert, is thirsty and is now brought to go and slake that thirst. And I do think the fact that it is milk is important, right? I mean, it, it is, Maureen, almost like a kind of rebirth, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a child thing, right? Um, uh, yeah, um, This is immediately juxtaposed with her overhearing Bardia's comment about her ugliness. By the way, this is one of the passages which, in my opinion, is irrefutable. Um, as to the question of is she really ugly or not, right? Bardia is one of the kindest people that we will meet in this entire story. Like, I, there is no reason to think um, 
And yes, milk is thick like blood, not thin like water. Yes, Bricktails, exactly. It is, uh, um, it is a thick comfort that she has received, and therefore a bowl of milk is also more appropriate in that way. Yeah, I was sorry. Thank you for reminding me. I was thinking that too, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't say it. Um, but anyway, um, Bardia is very, very kind. Um, if she were not actually so, her ugliness is not a product of the king's insults. Um, it is she is clearly objectively ugly. Um, Bardia would never say. Um, it's a pity about her face if uh, um, if she were not actually, in fact, ugly. And keep in mind, um, she can only marry someone else of royal blood. Um, if a man was blind and she weren't the king's daughter, she'd make him a good wife, right? But unless you're going to find a blind king out there, um, she's got no chance, right? Um Yeah. Uh, okay, so... He... What is he saying? What do we get from him about her here? His honest acknowledgement of her ugliness, right? But he compliments her. She's a brave girl and honest, Right? He says good things about her, and even the admission of her ugliness is fairly gentle. It's a pity about her face, right? Um, she thinks... He thinks she would make a good wife for somebody under certain circumstances, right? Certain very limited circumstances. Um, and then you get the wry comment. And that's the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. Um, again, the acknowledgement of the barrenness of her life. She will never, she can never find love, find happiness, find uh, in marriage. And therefore, we mustn't forget she seems cut off from being able to fulfill her purpose. She's a princess. This is her job, right? Remember, this is why the king keeps expressing his own frustration. She is good for nothing. Redival at least has some use. This is why the king is so mad um, when Redival is uh, uh, kissing Tarin, right? Um, when she is playing the wanton. Because in doing so, she's going to mess up the one... Uh, purpose that she has, right? Redival can fulfill her purpose. She has beauty. She is going to be desirable. She could be used to cement an alliance with a foreign power. That's her job, right? And Redival could fill it. If she doesn't screw it up, she could she'll fulfill that purpose, right? Orwal, Orwal is useless because no king would have her. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, The question of, does Bardia say that second thing loudly on purpose so that she can hear it? I don't know. I don't know. I can't rule it out. I tend to think not. 
just because I don't think I don't see his motivation exactly. Um, I don't see his motivation exactly, but I'm not going to worry about it too much. It's possible that he does. I mean, he is... Maybe he's trying to make her feel better. I don't know that it would make me feel better necessarily, but I don't know. Um, um, it does make her feel better. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe. Though I think there's some bitterness in that last sentence. And that is the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. Right. Um, I think I I taste bitterness in that last sentence there. Um but uh, but yeah, Cal Aros, I agree. It, at least wondering whether it was he was meaning for it to be overheard. It certainly is um, uh, is is a possibility. And I agree, Bardia's relationship with Orwell is going to be very interesting, very important uh, to watch as well. Um, but just a couple last things on the barrenness of her life and such. When she was little, you know, like up to when the bad times began here, the king thought she was useless, pointless. But she could laugh at the king behind his back because she had psyche, right? She had something which the king could never understand and certainly never appreciated. She had psyche. And their relationship. And that gave her life meaning. When there was no point in anything else. She wasn't a boy. She wasn't, you know, to be his heir. She wasn't marriageable. Right? Again, there is, she is pointless, worthless. The king brings that point clearly home. Right? But she has a private purpose that the king knows nothing of. Her relationship with Psyche. Her maternal, quasi-maternal relationship with Psyche. Um, she will never marry. She will never have her own children. <coughs> but she doesn't care because she has her daughter, her perfect, beautiful, wonderful daughter. Um, and now she's lost her. And her life is a dead desert. And her life before her is barren. And we are reminded here in this passage of the other reality, right? That, like, now it's as if it's, it's kind of coming home to her, in a sense. Now the king's right. Now she is useless. Now there is no point in her. And that's another thing that Bardia has begun to do in this scene. He is the only one who has offered her anything. No, actually, notice the fox does it too. Notice both of them point to her future life with hopefulness, right? The fox says, you've started philosophizing younger than I. You could progress further than I. You could become a greater, a better philosopher than I. You could achieve a greater and a more perfect wisdom than I have. Bardia says to her, look, you've got talent. You could be a really good swordsman. Um, you could be a soldier. You'd be very good at this. 
you can fight. Now that seems weird, right? Uh, notice also even the, the business about how her dress hampers her, right? Uh, if you would just dress a little bit less like a girl, right? You could, um, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be easier for you, right? Um, yeah. And Balrog, you're right. Orawal is talented both mentally and physically. Uh, it's really a shame that her culture only notices her lack of beauty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Her ugly face is like her one day. And it's so easy to look at Orwell from many perspectives and see exactly as you say, she is a tremendously gifted person. Um, she has an amazing brain. She is a strong person. She is physically gifted as well. She's athletically gifted, um, Bardia tells us. Um, she has an extraordinary quickness and stamina and, uh, uh, and uh, dexterity. Yeah, she is, but she's ugly, right? But she has a hideous face. Um, yeah, Leafa Starlight, I think that's right, that Bardia shows her an asp aspects, as aspects of herself that she can value outside of society's role that she's trapped in. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkably countercultural thing that Bardia is doing here. Right. And you can see how countercultural it is. The clothing thing reminds us of that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yes, Balrog, you were absolutely correct that these things, her gifts, her gifts of mind and body are going to lead her to become the perfect monarch. She is going to become the greatest queen, that the greatest ruler that Gloam has ever seen. Um which is, leads us straight back to the anger, bitterness, wretchedness, and despising of her life that she expressed in the opening paragraphs, right? Um, all right, more. Um, and let me see if I can do these, this last set of passages relatively quickly. That's always a little bit of a challenge, but we'll see. This is the description of their ride when she rides with Bardia. Bardia is going to take her up to the mountain because he knows the way and he can ride a horse and she can't. Um, so she's going to ride behind him on the horse and she, he's going to take her up to find the bones. Um, we passed the house of Ungit on our right. Its fashion is thus. Great ancient stones, twice the height of a man and four times the thickness of a man, set upright in an egg-shaped ring. These are very ancient, and no one knows who set them up or brought them into that place, or how. In between the stones, it is filled up with brick to make the wall complete. The roof is thatched with rushes, and not level, but somewhat domed, so that the whole thing is a roundish hump, most like a huge slug lying on the field. This is a holy shape, and the priests say it resembles, or in a mystery, that it really is the egg from which the whole world was hatched, or the womb in which the whole world once lay. Every spring, the priest is shut into it, and fights, or makes believe to fight, his way out through the western door. And this means that the new year is born. There was smoke going up from it as we passed, for the fire before Ungit is always alight. Um, her attitude towards Ungit and the House of Ungit. 
is very clear, right, from her, um, so many elements of her description, right? Um, Leaf of Starlight, especially that one, most like a huge slug lying on the field, right? Not the most salubrious image of the House of Ungit. Um, even things like a roundish hump, right? Uh, not very uh, flattering descriptions. Um, but I titled this slide The Comfort of Ungit because it is clear that ideas of comfort, ideas of, like, the, the, the things that are associated with Ungit, she still, she is familiar with them, right? She still describes them. Ungit is associated with birth, right? Um, the temple, the house of Ungit itself, is egg-shaped, right? It looks to her like a huge slug, but it is generally egg shape. It is a holy shape. It resembles the egg from which the whole world was hatched or the womb in which the whole world in which the whole world once lay. Right? It is the origin of all things in a mystery. It actually is those things. Um and every year the new year is born when the priest fights his way out through the western door like a chick breaking free of the egg that had confined it right um notice that it's a fight it's a struggle he has to struggle to get out um this this is a um this is a mystery right um and yes very little light getting in mary very little very little light. Um, but for all its darkness, um, smokiness, holiness, right? Um, it is associated with life and birth, not just the birth of people or the birth of animals, but the birth of the entire world. Remember again that association with the earth underneath the city, the earth from which the crops grow. Um, remember, the earth provides... It's its not just enemies that attack the city of the world, right, from outside, but food also comes from the farms that are outside the city as well, according to Psyche. Um, and uh, we, can, uh, we can see these things. Yes, I agree, her reference to his pretending to fight... And it is. It's a ritual moment, right? He's not actually, like, his life is not actually in danger, the priests, right, when he pretends to fight his way out. But what she, although she, Orwell, does not, I've said before that she, she has no, there's no question in her mind as to whether the gods are, are real. Whether the rituals and holy stories and mysteries of the priests are real is very much a question for her. Is Ungit real? Of course. Does the priest pretending to fight his way out the western door of the house of Ungit every year actually have anything to do with the coming of the new year? No, not in her mind. 
um, is um, is the house of Ungit the source of life? It, no, not in her eyes, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's interesting, Sarah. Yes, thank you. Uh, Balrog was saying this before about ritual Im- imitating life, and Sarah was asking, was adding, um, uh, birth would be a fight or struggle. Birth isn't an easy process, and to remember that both Orwell's mother and Psyche's mother died in childbirth. Yeah, yeah. Death and birth are very often connected, right? Um, both happened at the same time. Um, things dying and things newborn, to quote A Winter's Tale, um, were happening. We're happening together. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Maureen, it is like a, a a a womb. It is like an egg. It's also like a tomb, right? Death and birth, death and life. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, JJ, that's really interesting. Um, uh, JJ says it's kind of like Orwell's own story. Did the events really happen? Yes. But what do they mean? What is their significance? What do they show? And that's exactly where her issue with the House of Ungit is, right? Um, Does Ungit exist? Yes. Um, Do these things all mean what the priests say they mean? That's where she doesn't, uh, she doesn't really believe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but remember, she did see the power. Um, she felt the reality, the power, the significance of the priest and what the priest said. Um, she knew he wasn't just faking. She knew he was not just a, a politic man, um, a schemer, a schemer, who was trying to um, scheme for his own power, the increase of his own power. Um, there was something real there to him. I found my mood changed as soon as we had left Ungut behind, partly because we were now going into country I had never known, and partly because I felt as if the air were sweeter as we got away from all that holiness. The mountain, now bigger ahead of us, still shut out the brightening of the sky. But when I looked back and saw beyond the city, those hills where Psyche and I and the fox used to wander, I perceived that it was already morning there, and further off still, the clouds in the western sky were beginning to turn pale rose. As she goes up the mountain, going into new country, she's never been over here at all. She's never been to the mountain at all. Um... She has escaped the stench of holiness. Um, she has moved up and away from the house of Ungit, which is, remember, that's down in the valley. And she's going up on the eastern side now, up the Grey Mountain. And she's now looking back across and seeing the hills from which the looking and the longing had been happening before that Psyche was describing. Right, as they looked from those western hills towards the east, towards the Grey Mountain. She's now looking back, and it's already morning there. The sun is shining, as it always does in her memory, right? On those hills where she and the fox and Psyche had so much happiness. 
Um, the clouds in the western sky were beginning to turn pale rose. Yes, looking back and seeing the morning almost seems like a metaphor for seeing her childhood. Yes, absolutely. Um, so on the one hand, notice that she, like Psyche, is both looking and longing and seeing beauty and higher beauty, right? But she's looking west, not east. She's not looking at the Grey Mountain. She's looking from the Grey Mountain back towards that. She's still focused on Psyche, her and Psyche's relationship, right? Um, not on the mountain. She's looking away from the mountain that she's climbing up. But as she climbs, she feels she's struggling with something. And then she finally admits what it is. And my struggle was this. You may well believe that I had set out sad enough. I came on a sad errand. Now flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as it were a voice, no words. But if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? I had to tell myself over like a lesson the infinite reasons it had not to dance. My heart to dance? Mine, whose love was taken from me? I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love? The drudge of the king? The jailer of the hateful Redival? Perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father died? For who knew what Gloam would do then? And yet it was a lesson I could hardly keep in my mind. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me, as if I could wander away, wander forever, and see strange and beautiful things, one after the other to the world's end. The freshness and wetness all about me. I had seen nothing but drought and withered things for many months before my sickness. Made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind and laughing, as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness I could not quite believe in. Who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight? It is as if somewhere inside, within the hideous face and bony limbs, one is soft, fresh, lissom, and desirable. Oh, oh man. Oh, this passage. Again, as I said, this is this whole sequence of heading up into the mountain is one that it's easy, like not much is happening here. Right between very momentous and very tear-jerking events, and so it's easy to kind of coast through this stuff. But oh man, if you really stop, it's amazing. Um, you are in grief, but something around you is triggering happiness, delight. She is seeing the beauty of the mountain landscape around her that she has never seen before. And her heart wants to dance. Her heart wants to dance in delight. I don't know for sure if she did look and long before towards the Grey Mountain, the mountain that she is currently climbing, right? Um, did her heart feel the same longing as Psyche thought it did? Or at least as Psyche was projecting upon her? Assuming that Orowal felt the same thing that she did. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. She certainly didn't seem like she did at the time based on the memories as they've been recorded so far. But she's feeling it now. She's feeling 
the longing, being struck by the beauty and pulled outside of herself, longing for something else. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me as if I could wander away, wander forever, see strange and beautiful things one after the other to the world's end. Delight after delight, beauty after beauty, always strange, always new, ever more beautiful. Think how different this is. Think even of the freshness and the wetness all about her compared to the drought, not only the drought of the previous months um, prior to the great offering, but of the dead desert of her heart and life, right? This life is trying to come in to her, inviting her heart to dance. And she has to force it not to. I had to tell myself over like a lesson the infinite reasons it had not to dance. No dancing. Remember why you should not be dancing. Don't forget the dead desert of your life. Ah, wetness all about her as if it were a spilled bottle of water. Curious chance as if it were a bottle of you know, water which is overflowed the bottle, right? Um, life more abundantly, right? Um, but yes, Maureen, notice that it isn't just what she feels is beyond just longing. What she feels is transformation of herself. If she combined with that, her heart's impulse to dance is feeling within her, beneath the surface of her hideous face and bony limbs, is something beautiful, soft, fresh, lissom, and desirable. There is something beautiful inside her that wants to respond. She doesn't use here in her own mind the kind of language, exactly the language. She doesn't use the platonic language that Psyche was using. She doesn't talk about going home, for instance, right? Or anything like that. What she thinks of instead is like her inner self, right? Um, her... Um, this self within herself that wants to get out, to be not to submit to being hideous and bony, not to consent to being as dry uh, and dead as a desert, but to dance and to be beautiful. Um, and yes, Emily, you're right. She rejects it, not because she's mourning and levity would be inappropriate, though that too, right? Um, that's at least the excuse, but because it would mean she'd have to let go of her bitterness. Yeah. Yeah, she would. Um, it's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? She... Again, she's very self-aware in one, uh, to some degree, right? 
she acknowledges and recognizes that something in her is responding to this and wants to respond to this. She condemns it as folly. Um, and note, that's the language, that's Fox language right there, right? Um, that's very much like the Fox saying, um, you know, the Fox giving in to the muse of the poetry, right? And then taking it back afterwards. Um, very similar. Her calling this folly is very similar to that. I had to tell myself over like a lesson the infinite reasons I had for it not to dance. She is mastering her passions. She is seeing with the eye of reason, and the eye of reason is showing her all of the reasons that her heart has not to dance. Notice it's not the negative emotions, the negative passions that she's resisting. It's the positive ones, right? Um, yeah, Leafa Starlight, great question. Um, is, is that the older Orowal saying that it's folly or what she thought at the time? Um, older Orowal, yes, yes. I don't know that she condemned it as folly. At the time, she is, um, she feels the impulse and resists it and focuses on resisting it, right? Reciting her miseries. Uh, both present and future, in order to remind herself, her heart, why it should not dance, right? When she recalls this later on, as the narrator, she characterizes that desire of her heart to dance as folly, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Was I not right to struggle against this fool-happy mood? Mere seemliness, if nothing else, called for it. I would not go laughing to Psyche's burial. If I did, how should I ever again believe that I had loved her? Reason called for it. I knew the world too well to believe this sudden smiling. What woman can have patience with the man who can be yet again deceived by his doxy's fawning after he has thrice proved her false? I should be just like such a man if a mere burst of fair weather and fresh grass after a long drought and health after sickness could make me friends again with this god-haunted, plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous world. I had seen. I was not a fool. I did not know then, however, as I do now, the strongest reason for distrust. The gods never send us this invitation to delight so readily or so strongly as when they are preparing some new agony. We are their bubbles. They blow us big before they prick us. But I held my own without that knowledge. I ruled myself. Did they think I was nothing but a pipe to be played on, as their moment's fancy chose? Oh. Man. What a paragraph. Whew. Um, yeah, that bubble line is so great. Oh. Um, yes, yes, Doxy is a, a, a mistress. Uh, really, um, yeah, a, 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 a prostitute, a whore. It, it's like a, someone's Doxy would be like uh, the prostitute that they visit all the time, basically. It's, 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 to, it's, it's not just a mistress, exactly. 
Um, yes, she won't be taken in. Morgul Hamster, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, yes, Maureen, that is so important. She accused Psyche of not really loving her. Now if she's happy, she didn't really love Psyche. Right. In Orwell's defense, she is being consistent. She got upset with Psyche exactly because Psyche's heart was dancing. Right. As she was contemplating the Grey Mountain. Um, but she um, uh, it would be a betrayal of her love of Psyche as bad as she was accusing Psyche of betraying her love for her. Right. And she won't do it. She won't do it. But she asks the question, was I not right to struggle against this full happy mood? She's appealing to her judge here. Now, remember, we're her judges. We are in that judicial position. It's her and her versus the gods. Right. We are hearing her case. Was I not right to struggle against this? She made the choice. She had the impulse. Um, yeah. Um, Orawal, is she right? She's not wrong. She's not incorrect. Her data is correct. This does happen. I knew the world too well to believe this sudden smiling. If things look bright and pleasant in the world, um, does that mean everything's going to be great? That you can trust it? That the gods are looking out for you and everything's going to be fine and you won't be suffering the next minute? No, it doesn't mean that. She's seen it again and again. And that's true. When the world seems smiling and delightful, you're guaranteed to be experiencing suffering, suffering again later on. It doesn't mean things are over. Um, to believe that would be like believing somebody you know, who's prostitute you know, cheats on him and keep you keep going back to her and believing her when she says she's only for you right um, but as we've been saying it's not about facts it's about the reading of facts Yes, she does rule herself. Curious chance. Very important, right? She wins. Reason wins. Maybe she will go further than the fox as a philosopher, right? But what she's resisting is delight. Um, look at her data. I should be just like such a man if a mere burst of fair weather and fresh grass after a long drought and health after sickness could make me friends again, 
with this god-haunted, plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous world. The data. Remember, remember Psyche laying hands on people, right? Psyche lays hands on people and some of them get better and some of them die. Is she the blessed who brought healing or is she the accursed who brought death? Well, depends on your point of view, right? The data will support either one. What about here? The very way that she describes this, the, the data she's describing, um, there is long drought, there is sickness, but then fair weather and fresh grass comes after the long drought, and health comes after sickness. So, how do you read that? How do you understand the world? You could look at it in a couple different ways, couldn't you? Right? Just like you can the laying on of hands. Either the world is in fact a, a plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous place, and the fair weather, fresh grass, and health is just setting you up for more sickness and drought later on, it's just lulling you into complacency. It's just blowing you up big like a bubble before it pricks you. Because the pricking will come. Right? The fair weather and the fresh grass isn't going to last. The health won't last. Right? Um, to delight. To concede in delighting in these things is to be a fool. Will the data support that conclusion? Absolutely it will. Absolutely it will. But is that the only conclusion? Right? Um, is that the only conclusion? No. The data is after drought comes fair weather and fresh grass. After sickness comes health. You could easily go the other way with that and say... There is no, no suffering, no trouble, which is not, uh, in the end, going to also see healing. There is, the delight is real. And even if there is the occasional plague, drought, or sickness, well, there is also health and fresh grass and delight. Um, that also is true. And you have a choice whether, which way you're going to, um, you're going to read it. And she is clear. She is clear. She would, she is not a fool. She is not going to be taken in. She is not going to be suckered into buying that only to be blown up like a bubble and pricked again later on. To embrace delight. To give in to the longing that she's feeling, this longing for beauty, for joy, that she can see and feel all around her is just to set 
her up to make her a ready victim for the gods. She is no fool. She has the strongest reason for distrust. She has seen. She can't be taken in. Exactly like the dwarves in the last battle. 100%. Same year. Remember. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Arwen, you're exactly correct. The gods are sending both the delight and the agony. Absolutely. So, what does it mean? What does it mean? Right. What conclusion do you draw? Notice how much attention she draws to the fact that she is making a choice. She is not... It's not even that this is the only option. She feels the other option. A big part of her wants to take the other option. But she chooses, she compels herself, she schools herself, reciting it like a lesson, all of the reasons she has to hate and distrust the gods. She chooses this reading. And therefore, she chooses to keep that soft, lissom, and desirable version of herself inside. She didn't choose to be born ugly, but she's choosing ugliness now. The face that she is turning towards the gods is an ugly face of anger and bitterness and resentment and complete distrust. And that is the face she is choosing in this moment. It's not inevitable. As we saw with Psyche, Psyche confronted with the same tragedy, even more personal one. It was she herself who was going to be made into a human sacrifice, right? As Orwell expected, she was going to be even more upset than Orwell was herself, right? But it's, this isn't the choice that Psyche made. Cho Psyche chose exactly the opposite, right? Um, okay. We'll stop there. We're over time, and we're almost to the end of Chapter 9 anyway. Um, read, read the next three chapters. So read through chapter 12. I doubt we'll get that far, but you never know. We've been moving right along here. So, um, we'll see what we do, but read, read through chapter 12. Um, and, uh, we'll see, we'll see how far we go next time. But yes, starting off with a bang next week, as of course, at the very end of chapter nine, she finds herself in the Valley of the Gods and finds Psyche standing there across the stream from her, staring at her. Um, that scene, by the way, is especially powerful if you know Middle English poetry. If you've ever read The Pearl, um... Uh, if you've ever read Pearl, um, I'll, I'll tell you more about Pearl next time. Anyway, okay. Um, but um, anyhow, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, I will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again next week. Um, great fun tonight. Um, thanks everybody, and I'll see you next time. Bye now. <laughs>